Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now the, the mystic cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I'm reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about my life in the church. In this chapter, my long engagement to the Anglican Church of Canada is finally consummated. First, I was ordained a deacon, and a year later, a priest. But try as we all might, Ordination did not raise us above our station as frail and fallible human beings. In fact, it only served to remind us all that the word human is related to the Latin humus, connecting us all to the earth and therefore to humiliation. This is Chapter 7, Part 1. And it's just like way back in the days of old I was ordained to the diaconate on May 10, 1981. I returned to my ministry in Cookstown as a newly minted deacon. The congregation had rented a school bus to come down and attend the ordination service at the cathedral. They witnessed the laying on of hands. They saw me vested with the stole of my new office. They beheld me in my clerical garb. But now that we were back to our regular lives, we all had to admit the obvious. Functionally, nothing had changed. I still couldn't preside at Holy Communion. For that, the congregation had to hire a rent-a-priest once or twice a month. I couldn't pronounce a blessing or an absolution. For that, I still had to insert, may God do this and may God do that, as if we weren't confident that God really would, especially for the likes of a lowly deacon. Any benefits for the time being were only mine to enjoy. I began receiving a full-time stipend, a quaint word denoting a substandard salary that placed me just above the poverty line. I was registered with the National Pension Plan. I could speak and vote as a full member of Synod. I could attend meetings of clericus, a Latin word used to denote Anglican clergy, and also of ministerial denoting all the others from the other denominations. Especially close to my heart, I could finally join my colleagues for potty training or post-ordination training. All the other new clergy in that group were hitched to large parishes that were either urban or suburban congregations. They were churches with large enough budgets to support a staff of clergy. My colleagues were learning their craft from their rector, a senior priest who was molding their ministries in the likeness of their own. Those rectors were, after all, successful priests in the diocese. They watched over large flocks and drew large salaries and rubbed shoulders with larger-than-life personalities like 
politicians and business magnates and people who read the evening news. Those clergy had wisdom of both the spiritual and the temporal sort and plenty of advice to spare. One such rector hosted our potty group for lunch one day in his palatial rectory, surveying the expanse of blue broadloom, the dark-stained wainscoting, and the leaded glass windows, I commented to him that it was a beautiful house. He swept his hand before us all. Keep your nose to the grindstone, he said, and all this will be yours one day. I laughed, thinking he was making a joke, and quickly wiped the smile from my face when I realized he wasn't. My situation was not like that. Unintentionally, but not without some satisfaction, I had sidestepped the usual process and was learning mainly on my own in a two-point rural parish under John Dobson, the kindred spirit who was senior only in the sense that he was older, though he had much wisdom and experience to share with me. John and I were rural clergy serving small rural parishes. We occupied a certain station as a subset of the clergy of the diocese, not losers, exactly, but not climbers, either. Rural clergy tended to be regarded in the best light as humble and unambitious, in practical terms as lacking the skill or experience to handle the demands of a big city parish, or, in the worst light, as lazy. I'm not sure any of these applied to the rural clergy I was getting to know. This included the other clergy in town. The Presbyterian minister spent entire days in his book-lined study, as his congregation expected him to do, where he pored over the scripture readings for the week in their original Greek or Hebrew. You can't do that in a busy downtown church. Then again, one weekday in summer, I played hooky to visit Canada's Wonderland, which had opened just down the highway. I thought of it as a field trip, an exposure tour of sorts. But while I was wandering the site and wondering what all the fuss was about, I bumped into the United Church minister from town, doing the same thing. We greeted each other awkwardly, made our excuses, and then quickly got lost again in the crowd. As pleased as I was finally to be ordained a deacon, I knew it was only a stepping stone. I wanted to be a priest. I wanted the full pastoral charge of a congregation where I could stand at the altar and lead its weekly worship. I wanted to make ambitious plans for my parish and have the authority to carry them out. I wanted not to be an underling any longer. I knew I should have been content with the role of a good and faithful servant like Stephen the Martyr. I knew that it wasn't a bad thing to learn patience and to practice humility. These were, after all, gifts of the Spirit. But I was 27 years old. I just wanted to get on with it. Since the reorganization of the Diocese of Toronto and the creation of a college of bishops to administer it, I had gained a new boss, an area bishop named Art Brown. He was a large, affable man with a broad face and a broken nose like a retired boxer who, if you got him in a pub, would have stories to tell from his fighting days. He had a big, loud, hearty laugh. But with that broken nose of his and his obvious political smarts to have risen as he had in the ranks, you didn't want to try crossing him. Bishop Brown came one Sunday morning to Cookstown. 
He wanted to meet the congregation and also probably to form an opinion of its new deacon in charge. He would preside at Holy Communion and also perform an infant baptism as part of the service. I prepared the parents and the godparents for the promises they would be making. I also put together the details of the service, printing everything off in a bulletin to make it easy for people to follow along. All was in readiness. Now it was my job to step into the shadows and take my place as a deacon, assisting the bishop as he officiated at the service. When the day came, everything was going according to plan. We sang the hymns, we sat for the readings, the bishop preached. But when it came time for the baptism, the bishop startled me. Here, Brian, he said, you do it. Deacons can, in fact, baptize if called upon to do so, and especially if it's a bishop who's doing the calling. But it's not customarily their role, and certainly not when a bishop or priest is present to do the job themselves. I wasn't expecting this. I was up for it, though. The only slight challenge was how to squeeze past the bishop to get to the family who were on his other side, standing at the front. It was a small space— Did I mention that Bishop Brown was a large man? What happened next, the bishop and I remembered differently. What I recalled was brushing nervously past him, saying somewhat apologetically, Excuse me, bishop. What he remembered, laughing about it for years afterward, was me moving boldly in front of him, saying, Step aside, bishop. There were things I couldn't do as a deacon, ministries I couldn't yet perform, but preaching wasn't one of them. I had started preaching right out of the chute, even while I was still in the chute, for that matter. I preached in chapel services at the Toronto Western Hospital. I preached at Tim Foley's church in Aaron Mills. I even accepted preaching invitations elsewhere while I was a student. The yellowed notes I have kept in a dog-eared file are a testament to just how terrible some of those sermons were. One particular stinker rises fume-like from the file cabinet because I actually remember preaching it. It was during my last year at Trinity. I had been invited to preach at a two-point parish set deep in Ontario's lake country. I seem from my notes to have been employing a preaching method all my own called Establishing Cultural Relevance. This approach consisted of referring to something from popular culture, something everyone would recognize, and then using it to create a common bond, a foundation upon which to build my magnificent Tower of Babel. I'd hoped that television signals would have achieved a certain penetration there, placing us all on the same living room sofa, as it were. The cultural reference I chose was a recent commercial for facial tissue. The product was promoted as being soft and strong. Soft because it wouldn't chafe your nose, strong because it would contain the contents of your nose blowing and not make matters worse than they already were. There was even a little sing-along jingle that went with the ad, soft and strong, soft and strong, that was intended to live on in the memory as an irritating earworm. I obligingly sang this for the congregation, to gather everyone in. I didn't know these people. Perhaps I thought that by singing the ditty for them, I was displaying a little homiletic transparency, 
making myself a fool for Christ, in the hopes it would be endearing. What a nice young man, they'd say, so earnest. Then they might listen to my words of wisdom. I employed the same tactic when I went to Cookstown. It worked well in both places, for about two seconds. The point I seemed to want to make in this sermon was that, like this particular brand of facial tissue, the Christian faith requires both strength and gentleness. True gentleness, I said, like kindness and generosity, came from a place of inner strength. Jesus was no marshmallow, I told them with authority. His death on the cross, seen by some as weakness, required enormous strength, the two being inexorably linked. I may even have used the word inexorably. Similarly, in our own lives, love thine enemy? That requires strength. Pray for those who persecute you? Again, strength. Soft and strong, I said. Now, why didn't our own marketing people think of that first? It wasn't a bad sermon in its way. There was at least a point to it and a few supporting illustrations, or one, anyway. It had a structure that, like the proverbial Brontosaurus theory, was small at one end, wide in the middle, and then small again at the other. If I had been an elder in that church, I might have been tempted to pat the preacher on the head on my way out. What a novel sermon, I might have quipped, which, if said fast enough, actually sounds like, what an awful sermon, the ambiguity being intentional. But what I notice now about that sermon is how conceptual it was, directed straight at the head. Like Dave Ward and his theory of the physical resurrection, it seemed to be offering a new and improved way of understanding the gospel, but not necessarily of living it. There was no so what with which to ground the sermon in people's actual lived experience, unless I thought the reference to nose-blowing would accomplish that. The thrust of all my theological training had been to promote proper thinking, as if that underscored everything else we did in the life of faith. In some ways, this was precisely what Dave Ward and the fundamentalist preachers had been doing as well. Like modern-day cognitive behavioral therapy, their premise was that if you think the right things, chances are you will do the right things. The truth is, I had almost no idea what I was doing when I stepped into the pulpit. I avoided taking homiletics courses at Trinity. I don't know why. Was it leonine arrogance, wondering what they could possibly have to teach me? Or was it just plain laziness? I dutifully fulfilled Trinity's only formal requirement by preaching and recording two sermons during my second year and sharing them with Howard Clark, the retired archbishop and former primate of the Anglican Church of Canada. For all his sharp intelligence and grave social bearing, he was the gentlest of critics. But that was it, and two sermons do not a preacher make. So, like many new clergy, when the time came and I began preaching for a living, I felt like I had been thrown into the deep end. There was a lot of trial and error. It was like what happened to Catholic priests. I'd heard stories from Catholic friends about their priests starting to introduce jokes into their sermons, even if the humor bore no relation to the sermon's content. A memo must have arrived overnight from Rome that sermons should contain some humor 
to hold people's attention. But the memo hadn't mentioned that even a joke should have a point. You have to learn these things on your own. Every preacher, the well-trained and the naturally gifted among them, must find their own way. They must each discover what works for them. The outside limits to a sermon's length, the humor gradient from witty to wicked, the saturation point for scholarly asides, and the proper ratio of pastoral comfort to prophetic affliction. That doesn't come in a book, and it's the only explanation I can offer for the sermon preached the day of my priesting. On May 15, 1982, a year after I was made a deacon, I was ordained a priest. The service took place at Trinity Church in Barrie, my boss, the Right Reverend Arthur Brown, presiding. As the only ordinand, I was asked to choose the preacher for the service. I chose my friend, Brian Murray. I was excited. This was the big one. I knew in theory that being a priest did not erase or replace my being a deacon. In fact, priestly ministry is built on the foundation of the diaconal role, once a servant, always a servant, even as a priest, and even, dare I suggest, as a bishop. That was the whole point. Ministry, beneath all the power and privilege, was about service. Discussing this with Brian, he said he might even make that idea the centerpiece of his sermon. But there was something about being ordained as a priest that took things to a whole new level. In Catholic theology, it's called ontological change. It means that in ordination, one is transformed inwardly in the depths of one's being as an act of God. It's like the transformation that turns the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Same things on the outside, but changed on the inside. It's the reason that in Catholic tradition, one's ordination is considered indelible. Once a priest, always a priest, even if you leave the priesthood to get married, even if you fall from grace to commit heinous crimes, you are, by the grace of God, a priest for life. This is not an Anglican belief, but some Anglican clergy are rather enamored of it anyway. They are the ones who wear their clerical collars always and everywhere, even deep into retirement when they can no longer remember their own names, let alone lift a chalice. Problematically, some even start to believe it. They are the ones whose ministry can be characterized as Father Knows Best. Their theology is unquestionably correct. Their ceremonial is proper and precise. Their bearing is insufferably pious. Until the porn pictures fall out from their wallets or the stash of Mickeys is discovered behind the filing cabinet. I was not persuaded by the ontological change argument. Nothing had changed inwardly after my ordination as a deacon, except, of course, that I was back to being celibate. Still, there was something thrilling about the thought of becoming a priest. It invested the ordination service with a heightened sense of expectation. What would it be like? How would it feel? Something momentous was about to take place, though none of us in attendance had the foggiest idea what it was. Preachers at ordinations are often chosen as a way of honoring them, 
but it's also an opportunity. They have a shot at making an impression, of advancing their reputation and perhaps their career beyond their own parish. One good sermon at an ordination in front of the bishop and a jury of your peers, and you could be going places. A great sermon, and people think you just may have the right stuff to make archdeacon one day, perhaps even bishop. But a clunker? And you're staying right where you are, pal, perhaps for the rest of your life. I knew Brian Murray was a competent priest, but he had left parish ministry to become a family therapist. I guess the chance of fostering change in someone's life seemed greater to him one person at a time than in the general ebb and flow of congregational life. He had, in fact, been helpful to me on several occasions as a counselor. He was insightful and not averse to using sarcasm, which I particularly liked. I had never heard Brian preach, but this didn't concern me. I trusted that anything he said would be appropriate, both edifying to me and inspiring to the congregation. That was my hope, in any case. When his moment came, Brian rose in the pulpit to preach his sermon. He radiated warmth and charm, as I knew he would. There was a flash of good humor, even a little bedevilment in his eyes. He said some nice things about me. He told a few jokes. And then he launched into the central idea he wanted to leave with us all on the occasion of my ordination to the priesthood. Ministry, he said, was not about power and privilege. It certainly wasn't about those things for our Lord. For all of us, not just for priests, ministry was about service and sacrifice. He then told us a story to help plant the idea firmly in our minds— a wealthy lord was a blessing to the people who worked on his land and to all the town and surrounding countryside, especially through a time of famine and great privation. Somehow he managed to provide for all in ways that sustained both life and hope among them. Then it was learned that the king himself was to visit the lord. Everyone wondered what he would do, as there was no meat to be had in all the region but when the day came and the king arrived with his great entourage, they feasted late into the night, the Lord's ovens belching the smell of roast flesh into the country air. Once again, the people were amazed and wondered how their beloved Lord had brought this miracle about, until he emerged from his castle several days later, hobbling, a crutch supporting him where his leg had been. A collective gasp escaped from the congregation. It was followed by a stunned, wide-eyed silence. Some people covered their mouths. It was perhaps the first sermon since the preaching of sermons that accomplished infinitely more than anyone could have asked for or imagined. It was memorable, you could say that. But we couldn't stop long enough to take it in. The service moved along. Brian wrapped up though anything else he might have said paled by comparison to that one defining illustration and was therefore lost. The bishop examined me with the prescribed questions. Would I be diligent in the reading of Holy Scripture? Would I undertake to be a faithful pastor? Would I respect and be guided by the pastoral direction of my bishop? I could barely keep up. I just said, I will, to everything." Then the clergy were invited to step forward and join in the ordaining of the new priest. 
There must have been 12 or 15 of them. They closed in around me as I knelt before the bishop, cutting me off from both light and air. They extended their hands over my head, then lowered them. The weight pushed my head down into my neck between my shoulder blades and my body down into the floorboards beneath my knees. Somewhere high above me, the bishop was saying the magic words, but I was drowning in the milk of priestly kindness. Finally, their hands lifted, the light shone through, and I rose up a priest in the Church of God. Still, the image of the legless Lord haunted the assembly. Performing her own exorcism of sorts, Judy, a friend of mine who was helping out, circulated among the guests during the reception that followed. In her hand was a platter of ham salad sandwiches. As she offered the platter to clots of well-wishers, she was heard to say, Leg sandwich, anyone? I've been reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. Thank you for listening. As you've just heard, in my experience, holiness and levity are bedfellows, like heaven and earth. Our attempts to escape our humanity almost always devolve into something laughable. At the same time, whenever we truly want to become better than we are, life seems to provide ample supporting evidence that that is precisely what we should be wanting. My own heavenly gaze would soon be yanked down to earth again by the one thing that seemed always to trip me up, love. If any of this sounds familiar, I invite you to share your own story. Leave a post on the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Till next time, I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave.